Welcome to Simply by Grace, a podcast of Grace Life Ministries with founder and director, Dr. Charlie Bing. This podcast and other helpful resources can be found at our website, gracelife.org. Now, here's Dr. Bing. Uh, We do train pastors all around the world um, in different venues in our Grace Life Institute. You know, 90% of the world's pastors don't have an opportunity for formal education. So we kind of fill in some of the gaps there with with teams that go over and uh, teach very well-qualified teachers who teach um, some of the truths that we're talking about today and help them sort things out because the world's pretty mixed up about the gospel, believe it or not, and the United States too, um, but just about everywhere we go. In fact, that's why I'm talking about this topic, the making of a disciple, and why it's carefully worded that way, because there are some people who actually believe that disciples are born, not made. Very popular view, actually, and taught quite a bit. Now, now get the difference. Disciples are born, not made. In other words, in order to be a... Every Christian is a disciple, they would say. In order to become a Christian, then, you must meet the requirements for discipleship, which are many, we'll find out. And we'll go through them briefly today and then some tonight and tomorrow. There are many conditions for discipleship, but they say a Christian is someone who meets those conditions. I don't care for that message because you see what it does to the gospel. It takes it away from grace, what God has done, to what we can do. And so it changes the message. That's why I believe disciples are made, not born. So there's a time in one's spiritual journey where we actually have to make the commitments to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I think we'll see that happen in uh, the life of the Apostle Peter. Uh, If you know the Gospels and you've read the Gospels, I think, you'll see that Peter is kind of prominent in the group. He's one of the inner three of Jesus' circle with James and John. He's the spokesman for the group, and he's given more attention than any of the other disciples. And I think there's a reason for that. I think God wants us to look to him as an example of what a disciple is and the journey that he takes, even when he stumbles, which is what we'll talk about Monday night. Um, But so there are different stages, even in the Christian life. And I think Peter kind of represents all of those stages. And I've broken them down into three stages, curious, convinced, or committed, which I find true of a lot of different things in life, um, not just the spiritual realm. When it comes to spiritual things, there are great consequences to it. When it comes to other things, uh, like football, there's not great consequences to it. My wife and I were born, raised, and grew up in the Washington, D.C. area in the state of Maryland, And I came to Texas to go to seminary, and when we got there, we found out that there was a religion called the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, football was not that big of a deal when I grew up, but down down there, it is uh, really worship. Um, But so I pay attention to what they're doing because I have to, in my culture, know what the Cowboys are doing, or else you're just an oddball. I'm a little bit curious about their scoring and so forth, their record, and I know they're not doing well this year. It doesn't bother me at all. because I'm a Redskins fan. But, and, but you know, I, I don't follow them really either. I'm just kind of listening uh, curiously to how they're doing. I'm a fair weather fan. If they started to win, then I would kind of be uh, you know, convinced, hey, they might win this. There's some people who are convinced that the Dallas Cowboys are going to pull it out this season. You know, they don't give up hope till the last minute, till the last game. So in, when it comes to sports, you have those who are simply curious. Some are people are convinced that you know, the Cowboys are their team and that they're going to win. And they go to games and they cheer them on. And then you have those that are really committed. These are the ones that they make it a point to go to. They buy season tickets. They go to all the games. Or they'll be sure to watch every game at home when they're playing. They're the ones that will will wear the shirts and paint their faces 
uh, and go to the games. Do you have that kind of fan here in Nebraska? Huh? Uh, yeah, I did a little research. I did a little research and found out you do. There are fanatics here too. That's where the word fan comes from, fanatic, right? Somebody who's totally committed to their team to this degree, <laughs> all right? I don't know if that describes you or not when it comes to Nebraska football. But so these three groups are in all of life in relation to a lot of things, but when it comes to spiritual things, there are really some great consequences to what group that we find ourselves in. And we see that in Peter's life too. And uh, we're first introduced to Peter in the Gospel of John. The earliest episode in Peter's life is John chapter 1. And that's where Andrew, Peter's brother, went and met Jesus and, and goes and finds his brother Peter, it says. He goes and finds him. And then he says to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Peter to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at Peter, he said to him, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. I believe Simon means hearer, but he's going to be transformed from a hearer to a stone. Peter probably looked at him with dumbfounded eyes, didn't know what he was talking about. But what Jesus was saying is that someday you're going to be the very bedrock of the church that I'm going to found. Didn't mean much to Peter at the time. He was just a hearer. He was hearing Jesus, but, but he didn't understand what was in his future. Now, we don't know exactly when Peter believed, but we know he did. In John chapter 2, verse 11, at the wedding of Cana, it says that all the disciples believed in him there. So evidently, he became a believer by that time. And then we come to another episode in his life in chapter 6, which is very interesting. Um, in John chapter 6, we have this famous and well-known miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 that you've, you've heard about. And um, the story, the background is Jesus is sitting by the Sea of Galilee, and um, a great multitude follows him, it says in verse 2, because of the signs that he performed on those who were diseased. So Jesus healed many of the sick. Now, you know, it's not really arbitrary, the miracles that Jesus did. He did them he did them uh, strategically. He, he performed miracles to gather a multitude so he could preach them a message. That's the purpose behind miracles. He just didn't go around arbitrarily picking people. So here, he does draw a crowd exactly, I think, as he intended to do by performing miracles. And you understand that in ancient Israel, it's mostly made up of small villages and towns, and there's not much for entertainment. You can't go to the movie theater. There's no TV. There's no video games. There's no internet. So when somebody comes through town and they heal somebody who's been diseased, it kind of creates a, a buzz and people are coming out to see the greatest show in town. And it's free. And they go hear him. And there's, there's a great multitude there. What happens in the story then is that um, it becomes late in the day and the disciples see this large crowd and they say to Jesus, this crowd is staying and we don't have anything to feed them. What should we do? And Jesus says, you feed them. And they must have looked awfully dumb at that point too. Uh, what Jesus was doing was training them in ministry. Someone has said that ministry is when God asks us to do, asks us to do what we cannot do with resources we do not have. And he was teaching his disciples to trust in him and he'll take care of it. And so they find a boy with some bread and some fish and he multiplies that enough to feed 5,000 people, the best fish sandwiches you've ever had. 
This makes me think of when I was in Trinidad and they took us to a beach and they, they have a shark and bake sandwich there. It's a shark sandwich with all different kinds of toppings you can choose to put on it. Anybody ever watched Bizarre Foods with Andrew, Andrew Zimmerman? Uh, he was at that same beach. I saw him on TV at the same beach we were at. And uh, Karen and I had this sandwich and, and he said it's the best sandwich he ever had. So I don't know what this boy was carrying two sharks around, but uh, that was probably the best fish sandwich they ever had. I can imagine. And not only that, but they could eat their fill of it. Look at verse 26. It says there that uh, Jesus answered and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, seek me because of the signs. Not be- I left a word out. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. The word filled is a word that used elsewhere for uh, cows that were gorged, literally gorged on grass. So they had their fill. I, they, it was kind of an all-you-can-eat fish sandwich affair. But now he says, you know, you were following me because of the miracles you saw, but now you realize that there's something benefit you can get out of this for your belly. It's free food. And because of that, it says in verse uh, 15 that they tried to force him to become king, but he departed and left by himself. Now, who wouldn't want a king that could give them free stuff, right? That's, that's what politicians have learned to do is promise us all kinds of free stuff while they take it out of our back pocket, right? and give it away freely. So be careful on your elections in nine days. I encourage you. Um, yeah, a king that gives us free stuff. Let's make him king. But you see, all that they had in mind was their belly and their appetites. They weren't coming to him for spiritual needs at this point. This large crowd of over 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children. So uh, Jesus, uh, then he, what Jesus does, is he, he goes up into the mountain to pray, and his disciples get in a boat, And you remember, they go across the Sea of Galilee, and in the middle of the sea, they encounter this large storm, and and Jesus suddenly appears walking on water, and he comes to them in the middle of the storm and gets in the boat, and the waters calm down. And they go to the other side of the sea, and those who he left know that only one boat departed, but Jesus is gone. And then those where he arrived uh, see that Jesus is there. They figured out that he had gone over there somehow. But anyway, they, they all gather on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and, and Jesus has something to say to them there. In fact, he kind of calls them out. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me. Oh, that's the verse we just saw. He says to them in verse 27, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you. Notice the word give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? That's an odd question because didn't Jesus just said, this is what I will give you? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now let's um, deconstruct this a little bit. The disciples follow him across and Jesus calls them out and he says, look, if you're really going to strive for something, don't strive for another meal that you're just going to need another one and another one. Strive for something that's going to satisfy you forever. That I can give you. Okay? That I can give you. It's a free gift. And then he says, but then they said to him, what work shall we do that we may do the works of God? Now we understand that the, the mindset of the Jew at that time was, a, was set in the law and what they had to do to be righteous before God by keeping the law. And every rabbi taught a different version of what kind of righteousness and laws they had to keep, which were the most important commandments. 
And so Rabbi X would teach this, and Rabbi Z would teach this, and now here comes Rabbi Jesus. So let's ask him, what do we have to do to do the works of God? Okay, Jesus, what's your list? How do I become right with God? Give me a list of things to do. But Jesus just said to them, it's the eternal everlasting life that the Son of Man will give you. And so he takes their question in verse 29, and he turns it around on them using their words. But instead of saying works, he says, this is the work of God. This is what you need to do. Nothing. Just believe in him whom he sent. If you really want to know what you have to do, it's not works. It's believe, have faith in the one that he has sent. You see, I think the Jews at that time depict what, what um, the mindset of the world is even today in the United States and many of the places that I visit around, every place that I visit around the world. There are only two religions in the world. It's actually very simple. There is the religion of do, which says that you have to keep a list of something to do. Whether you're talking to a Hindu or a Buddhist or a faithful Jewish person or um, Muslim, they all have a list of something to do. The lists just vary. In the end, it's all the same to me. I always ask them the same questions. How do you know when you've done enough? How do you know when you've done enough? And that's why it's so important, the message that we have, that we share that message, because our message says it's been done. That Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, paid for all of our sins. And he died, he said, it is finished. To tell us die means paid in full. And so Jesus Christ paid the price. It's not what we do, it's what he's done. All we can do is receive the free gift. How do we receive the free gift? By believing in him. Faith is like an empty hand that just simply receives what is given to it. There's nothing that left to do. How do you top the Son of God dying on the cross? What are you going to add to that? It's a little bit insulting to even think that we could add something to that, isn't it? And so there's really only two religions in the world, the religion of do and the religion of done. And so Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He changes the discussion now and uses some figures of speech that are going to kind of throw them. But he's using the analogy from Moses in the wilderness when he called down and asked God, and God provided manna for the people. And Jesus says, like that incident in the wilderness, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. Whoever comes to me, when you trace that phrase, comes to come to Jesus or comes to me in the Gospels, you'll see that it's always an invitation or the meaning behind it is always believing in Jesus as Savior. When you see the phrase, come after me or follow after me, that phrase in the Gospels always refers to discipleship or following after Jesus, after you believe. So there's a distinction there. And he says, he who comes to me will never hunger. And he who believes or trusts in him for that promise of eternal life will never thirst. And he says, you have seen, and you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So in this large crowd, he understands that there were many people there who did not yet believe in them. And there's a reason for that, because he he tries to explain to them briefly in verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. There's an unseen work of God in a person's life that draws them to the point where they're listening, when they're hearing, when they're seeing their need, and when they're asking Jesus Christ to meet that need. And these people were not there yet. 
I have a whole another different message on that, but my study results in, in showing that what it means, how does God draw people to Christ? It's by teaching his word, by sharing his gospel. And when we teach Jesus as the one on the cross, it says it will draw all men to himself. And that doesn't necessarily mean that all men will believe, but it, all men will, under, will see something that attracts them or they, they're curious about. Just like these 5,000 were drawn to him, but not all actually believe. So anyway, in verse 47, he says it as simply as can be said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. He who believes, trusts, is persuaded that something is true, is convinced that his promise is true. Whoever takes that promise and believes it has everlasting life. Not will have, but has it at the moment of faith. And then John, then in 53, he says to them, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, that's an interesting analogy that Jesus uses, a little morbid sounding at first, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's not here talking about communion or Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, like some people interpret it. He's just simply giving an illustration of what faith is like. Faith is like personally appropriating the life of Jesus Christ and his promise. When I was in Africa and I was being interpreted through, uh, to a different, into a different dialect, I was trying to explain them what it meant to believe, to explain to them what it meant to believe. And the interpreter just stopped me and he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, we got a word for that. It means to take God's words and eat them. I said, well, perfect, because Jesus used that example in John chapter 6. What do we do when we eat? We're not working. We're not doing anything. We're usually not working. We're usually resting. We're just appropriating something. Anybody here think work is eat? Uh, eating is work? <laughs> okay. But John uses analogies like that all through his gospel. Whoever receives him, whoever enters, whoever, com whoever comes, whoever hears, whoever sees, he implies seeing in John chapter 3. He uses all these different analogies, and every single one of them is alike in the sense that it's not work. It's just a simple activity that is asked of us. So wh whoever eats or appropriates my promises has everlasting life. Now, not everybody got that. They were curious enough to follow him, but they didn't get that. And uh, Jesus was going to take it a few steps further by uh, explaining their needs, but they had not yet believed. They were curious enough to follow him, first, for the miracles, secondly, for the satisfaction of physical needs, but not yet willing to admit their own need. Now, there was a time in my life where I would probably be in that, called in that curious group, even though I was raised in a denominational church along with my brothers and sisters, but my parents would usually just drop us off in the morning and pick us up later. And I have seven years perfect attendance pins all through elementary school. Uh, I still have them today somewhere. Uh, you know, we hang one pin every year on, on the next one. And I learned Bible verses there, like John 3.16 and Psalm 23 and the Lord's Prayer, and they stuck with me all through my life. But I never understood how exactly that involved me. Jesus died for the world, and he rose again. But you see, if we leave it there, that's just history. That's history. And I believed that, and I believed history, but I never understood how that related to me. One, one year, I, I was about 16 years old, I came in from track practice at my high school and came into, walked into the locker room and somebody had put posters on the wall saying, pizza feast, all you can eat pizza. 
at this church. And then it said also, you know, the speaker's name. So I kept that in the back of my mind. And when Friday came and we were all standing around our, our little gang, about five others, and what are we going to do tonight? I remembered that. And I said, well, you know, I remember this poster that said that at this particular church, they're having an all-you-can-eat pizza feast. So why don't we go there and get some pizza? Okay. So we got in the car and we drove over to the church and we were warmly welcomed by a friendly usher. And he ushered us down almost near the front of the church. And we sat down and we said, where's the pizza? And he said, well, you have to listen to a speaker first. Oh, okay. So we sat down and we listened to the speaker. And he was good. He told fascinating stories. I don't remember exactly what he said, but he told some good stories and had our attention. Then at the end, he said, okay, I want everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. So we did. And um, he said, now, if you're not sure that you have eternal life, if you're not sure you're going to heaven when you die, just raise your hand. Well, I wasn't sure. I'd been struggling with that. So I raised my hand. I looked around. Nobody else it was, had their heads up, so I raised my hand. I peeked at my friends, and they were raising their hands too. And then he says, now, everybody who's raised your hand, I want you to stand up where you are. So we're kind of stuck now. So we stood up and looked at each other and free pizza, you know. So <laughs> we stand up. And then he says, everybody who stands up, I want you to walk forward and come into this room, and we're going to talk to you for a little while. Again, we felt like fish caught in a net, but we looked at each other, and this is what it takes to get free pizza. So we walked up to the front, into the room, and we, we met a counselor there, and he explained some things to us. I think he went through John 3.16. I think we kind of giggled and smirked through the whole thing, um, but we didn't want to disagree with him. We wanted our pizza, so we agreed with him and probably even prayed the prayer at the end with him and finally got our pizza, which at this time was very cold. <laughs> But you see, we weren't there to hear a message about our spiritual needs. We were just there to get pizza. So we weren't listening to him. And when we left that church, we left just as unsaved as when we had walked in. We were curious enough to be there to meet an appetite or a need, but not, not enough to be saved. We didn't know our spiritual needs. You know, there's a lot of uh, curious people today. I'm just going to skip, let me just skip ahead to that, and I'll go go back in a second. But there are many who are curious about Jesus today. They have questions because he's such a prominent figure. And um, they may have different reasons for being curious. They may be attracted to you or this church because, because they know some nice people who go here, or they heard the church has a nice children's program, or they think they can make some friends here, or maybe even some business contacts, or now I'm going to get a free meal. Well, we don't blame them and we welcome them, don't we? We're glad people are curious. We always want people to come and feel welcome for any kind of reason. Um, but that doesn't mean that they understand their real need and that they understand that they have spiritual needs that Jesus can meet. So there are those who are curious about Jesus today. And uh, we welcome them. We're glad that they are. And we want to answer their questions and lead them further towards the truth. But let me, let me just back up here. Um, in, in verse 60, you see, he's, Jesus, as he started to teach about their spiritual needs and tell them that they needed more than just food, uh, it says, many of the disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? What's he talking about? Eating and drinking his blood. Uh, it didn't connect with them because they didn't have the ears to hear it at that time. 
And Jesus knew that, and he says later in verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And then he goes on, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. So of the 5,000 or more who were there, thousands just walk away from the greatest opportunity of a lifetime because they didn't understand they had a need that Jesus could meet, a spiritual need. They're even called disciples here um, in verse um, 66, which is an unusual use of the word because it may be the only time in the Bible where those who follow Jesus are unbelievers, but it says Jesus knew that they didn't believe. So it's used in a very loose sense of somebody who's just following, because they were curious, they were learning from him, they were following him to a certain degree, but they weren't true disciples. And Jesus knew that, and when he turned around and he saw that all of them had left, he saw that there was only 12 who remained. And he turns to these 12 disciples and he says, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter, of course, answers them, answers him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter knew the options that were out there. None of them were satisfied, satisfying to him. There were all different kinds of lists of unattainable righteousness and laws that they had to keep. And he says, Jesus, we've looked, we know the options. You alone have the words of eternal life. And we know, we believe, and we are sure, some translations say, that you are the Christ, the Son of God. As the Christ, meaning he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God who would suffer and die for the sins of the world. And as the Son of God, God the Son. A divine being, God in the flesh, who would die on the cross for our sins. To be the Son of God was a declaration of deity, because when Jesus called God his Father, they picked up stones to stone him, because he claimed to be God. So, what we have is these 12 remaining then, and Peter shows in his testimony, his confession, that they are convinced about Jesus. They're convinced that he's the best among options, and they um, didn't really, uh, well, they did believe in Jesus as Christ for eternal life. That was very clear. Well, as we said, that, that point in a person's life involves God working on the inside in some way that we can't really fully explain, but uh, I wasn't ready at the age of 16. But I'll tell you what happened when I was 18 years old. I was out partying one night with my best friend and neighbor and uh, running partner, and uh, we came home that night after the party, and he went home and died in his bed of a drug overdose. And I was 18 years, years old, and I said, wow, teenagers die. I didn't know that. So it kind of shook my world, and uh, I, I started to stop doing some of the things I was doing and started to seek some answers about my purpose in life. And it wasn't until about a year later I met a young lady at my work, and she had a big smile on her face and a big Bible in her hand. And uh, we made fun of her until we found out she was such a nice person. And then she could answer questions about the Bible that we threw at her. And she was really serious about it. And so she would t- give us Bible passages to read, books to read, tapes to listen to. And uh, I say we because it was my roommate and I. I always include him in my testimony because we believed at the same time. It was in the summer of 1973, through the testimony and the witness of this young lady, that we believed in Jesus Christ as our Savior. 
finally understood that Jesus Christ didn't die just for the world, he died for me. That it wasn't just a history lesson, it was salvation to know that he died for me and would give me eternal life. And so I went from being just curious about Jesus to being convinced that he was my Savior. And that's where Peter was in his story. Uh, By this time in John chapter 6, we see that he is convinced. And uh, that's why he makes that declaration that we believe and we know or are sure, some translations, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So to believe in him means that you're believing him for the promise of eternal life. You believe who he is and what he has promised. So there are some who are convinced today um, that they, they are convinced that they're sinners, that are separated from God, that they have a need for eternal life or else they would have eternal condemnation. They believe that Jesus was God in the flesh who died on the cross for sins and rose from the dead because a dead person can't save anyone. And as a living Savior, he promises eternal life to anyone who will receive it, eat it, drink it, just appropriate it, accept it as true. I wonder today if you're among the curious or the convinced, and if you've, you've come to that place of faith in Christ as Savior. But there's another step Peter needed to take. He was following Jesus already. But the interesting thing about following Jesus as a disciple is he always ramps it up and asks a disciple to be more of a disciple. For example, we see in uh, John chapter 8, one of his conditions for discipleship that he gives to new believers in John chapter 8. So turn there, but before we turn there, what I want you to understand is there's a difference between, as I said, uh, being a Christian and being a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And it's illustrated by this chart here. There we go. A disciple means to be a learner or a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, It comes from the word to learn. I like to think of it in terms of an apprentice. Matthew 10, 25 says, it is enough that a disciple becomes like his master. Now that's different from an invitation to salvation, you see. So when we look at this chart, you see that salvation is being convinced that Jesus is Savior. Discipleship is being committed to him as your master or Lord of all of your life. In theological terms, we say a person is justified and then a person is sanctified. Justification is something that happens in an instant. When we come to Christ, sanctification is something that happens over a lifetime as we follow him. So one, uh, salvation is faith in Christ, which is a single condition. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One condition, simple. Discipleship, on the other hand, involves many conditions. Faithfulness to Christ. And he gives many conditions, and we'll talk about some more tonight and I'll show you a list in a minute. But there are a lot of conditions for discipleship. And the problem is, if you make those conditions for salvation, we mix the gospel all up, and we've suddenly injected works into the gospel. And then how could a person ever know that they're even saved? So one happens in an instant. We're justified, saved, born again in an instant. And the other is a lifetime process of growing to be like Christ. One is absolutely free to us. You're saved by grace. That means a free gift. And the other is costly. Jesus said, unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. Do you understand the difference? That's worth getting up for in the morning. Worth the price of the ticket, right? Uh, I use this chart everywhere, and uh, people, it helps people understand the difference. And so let's look, look at one condition today, this morning, in chapter 8 and verse 30, 
1. Now, what happens here in chapter 8 and 31, Jesus is talking in a little context. Jesus is talking to a crowd of Jewish people, and they're arguing with him. You say you're this, and, and, and you know, how can you say that? They're arguing about who he is. John, in his typical manner, inserts a parenthetical remark. You'll see that all through the book of John, where he explains things in kind of a parenthesis, if you picture a parenthesis around verses 31 and 32. And he wants, to know, he wants you to know what's going on while Jesus is arguing with the crowd. Here's what's happening in the background. Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Let's, let's dissect that a little bit. He says, if you abide in me, who's he saying it to? Not the disciples who are following him already, but to those who had just believed in him. So the condition of discipleship is for those who have believed in Jesus Christ. It's not a way of salvation. If you abide in my word, the word abide means to remain in, to be continue in something, to be close to, to dwell in something. I use the example of uh, uh, Karen and I are living in uh, Chuck and Lydia's home right now, but only for a couple days. We haven't even completely unpacked our bags. We're not dwelling there. We're not abiding there. That's what I do in Texas. I go home and we unpack our bags and I settle down in my favorite chair and grab a snack and watch TV. Now I'm abiding. You see, there's a difference. There's a difference between a wooden stake that's driven into a ground and a tomato plant that is planted in the ground and thrives because it remains in the ground and draws its nourishment out of the soil. So the word meno, the Greek word abide, means to continue in, to, to dwell with, to uh, you know, abide, to continue. And he says, if you abide in my word, uh, so he, that, that, that probably means more than just hearing a sermon or even more than reading his word, probably implies abiding in his word, memorizing it, committing yourself to following it, and obeying it. So I don't know how, how are you doing with your relationship to his word? Just hearing it, just reading it, or are you actually living it and following it as a disciple of Jesus Christ? So that's one of the conditions for discipleship we find in the Bible. We'll actually find that there are many other conditions, and we're going to talk about three more tonight. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and what those mean. But he also said, you need to love me more than anyone else. I need to be the first relationship in your life, more than your father, mother, brother, and sister. What does he mean by that? He means that he needs to be first place in your life. He says you need to love and serve others if you want to be my disciple. And then he says you need to lose your life, which includes just about everything, doesn't it? So here we see Peter, who was curious, is now convinced, but continues to follow Jesus and abide with him, to live with him. And that's what disciples did in those days. They actually lived with their master day and night. And they learned his word from him. And so where are you today? Are you simply among those who are curious? You've not come to the place in your life where you can say with certainty, I know that I have everlasting life. I know that Jesus is my Savior forever. Or are you convinced that he is, as I'm sure many of you are, but how about committed as disciples? Are you living by your agenda or God's agenda? Are you following your purposes for your life or his purposes for your life? Are you approaching his word with eagerness to follow it, discovering his will in his word? That's what a disciple does. 
curious, convinced, or committed. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. And just give uh, everybody a moment of privacy, because I want to ask you, do you know for certain that if you were to die today, you would have everlasting life and go into the presence of God? Or do you still have some fear and insecurity about that? Do you feel like there's some sins that you've committed that God could never forgive you for, that he couldn't accept you, that you still have to be a better person or improve your life? Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, by grace you are saved. That means it's a free gift. And the only way you can have a free gift is by opening up and accepting it, eating it, believing it. Would you believe today in Jesus' promise that whoever believes in him has everlasting life and just settle that issue today? I'm wondering if there's anyone here who would just say, I'd like to settle that issue today. I want to, I want to show you by raising my hand. Just briefly put your hand up and put it down. I want to show you today that I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I'm not going to doubt any longer. Is there anyone that would just show me that with God as a witness? Today, I'm believing in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Yes, thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Thank you for showing me that. We're going to pray for you in just a second. Now, there are others here today who know Jesus as Savior, but you're kind of living according to your agenda. You've never really surrendered your life to him as an act of gratitude and love for what he's done for you. And I wonder if there's anyone here today who would say, I have a deeper understanding of what it means to follow Jesus, and I don't have a full understanding, but I want to follow him and commit myself to him today. Would you just stick your hand up real quickly and put it down? With God as a witness, just stick your hand up and put it down. I want to be a disciple and follow Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Anyone else? Good. Praise the Lord. Anyone else? I want to pray for you too. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Now, some here have said that they are trusting in you for eternal life, and you know their hearts. And I pray that you would give them that joy of assurance of salvation, that you will never leave them or forsake them. You'll never cast them out, that you love them enough as a parent loves their own child to keep them in the family forever because of what Jesus has done. Help them walk down that that road of assurance now instead of doubt and fear and insecurity. We're thankful for them. And for those who have made the step of saying, I want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ and follow him wherever he leads, I pray that you'd begin to show them just the next step. Don't show them the end picture, Lord, they'll get scared. Just show them the next step they need to take because they said they want to follow. So let their journey begin today. Now, Father, Father, I thank you for all that God has done, and it's all because of his love and all communicated to us through his grace and his gospel. And uh, we appreciate that. We appreciate the fact that Jesus died for us when we were still sinners, that we might live forever with him. Thank you for listening. For more resources, or to help spread the message of God's life-changing grace, visit our website at gracelife.org. We'd love to hear from you. Send us a message at simplybygrace at gracelife.org. See you next time.